Hey, Sandy and Nora fans, Nora here. We are still on vacation. So here's part two from last week's episode. It's a really great Q&A that talks about organizing, podcasting and alternative media and how we can keep each other safe uh, from not getting arrested or losing our jobs when we're doing radical action. I hope to say that we will be back next week. We will certainly try to be back next week, but some things might be out of our hands. So stay tuned. Hope, hope, hope to talk to you next week about everything that's going on in the world. But if not, I will give you an update next week to tell you when we will be back. Until then, enjoy. because I mean we can keep going there's much we've got many many more stories uh, and also Sandy when, when, when Sandy was saying you know as long as you have a group of people she pointed at me and said or a partner is because she knows that actually the whole tramway poster thing was because my partner was like looking for revenge on the uh, anti-tramway people and he's also an organizer he comes from the student movement so it was like him going okay I don't care I'm just doing this and I'm like okay figure it out and he called the city councilor, no, no answer. Called our friend who's the head of a municipal party, left-wing municipal party. She's like, oh yeah, go ahead and do it. Called two groups saying, hey, can you guys do something? They're like, yeah, you go ahead and do it. And he's like, okay, fuck, I guess we're doing this, so. Thank you so much, Sandy and Nora, for joining us. This has been really fun. I feel like watching the podcast is amazing. <laughs> we love it, because we never get to look at each other, because I don't know if we explain this, but we live in two different cities. <laughs> we, we don't look at each other when we're doing the podcast, because it's not like a YouTube podcast. So, My name is Kenzie. I'm from Region 7, and my pronouns are she, they. Um, uh, I'm very intrigued with what you're saying about radical action because that's so important. But as a social worker, I'm always under a microscope, mm. and there are very strict boundaries about what professionalism is and what it can be, and having a criminal record. I don't wanna be scared of these things, but I wanna have a career. Like a lot of other people here, probably, I'm trapped under a lot of student debt, mm -hmm. and I need to have a job. So how can I kind of conquer that fear of like having a criminal record? taking radical action and not being afraid that it's all going to blow up in my face and ruin my That's life. That's a really good question. So uh, there's a few ways to come at that question, too. So one is that, you know, radical action, as, as risky as it is, and it is risky, yeah, you, you could get a criminal record. I have been doing it for years, and I've never been arrested, nor do I have one. Like, and I slept outside this police station in Toronto for two weeks, the headquarters. So, you know, we thought it was going to happen, but I don't. I don't have one. In some ways, part of what you do in having as many people around you as possible is you make it hard for the people who oppose you to do something bad to you, because then everybody's going to be mad. They don't. They don't want to lose their support either. So you create. You try to create conditions under which it's really difficult to do that. But also, it is the case that not everyone is going to be able to take the same types of actions. Not everybody can take the same types of risks. 
And that is just a reality of the way that this whole thing works. And so how do you, like, what is your best contribution is what you need to try to figure out. It could be that if it's something that you're, you're engaging in that is like you have specialized knowledge on because of the work that you do every day, figure out how to get that specialized knowledge to the people who need it. If you have a specialized skill that, you know, like social work is a, a pretty specialized skill, and you can support people who are on the front lines who need some sort of support for all of the work that they're doing, yeah. oh my gosh, we need that big time, so badly. Like, I mean, I think of this story that Nora just told about Dr. Henry Morgenthaler. Um, you know, like this is somebody who was taking a huge risk um, in the professionalism of, of, of his profession. He was a doctor, you know, and is, is doing this radical, illegal action and, you know, died a Canadian hero. Mm. Uh, but at the time, I am sure he was like, gosh, I could lose everything. And so you need to figure out, like, for yourself, and no knock on you if you're like, that is not a risk I can take, you know? Maybe I've got kids, like, I've got, like, responsibilities, I've got a family to take care of, whatever. You know, perhaps that is not the action that you can take, but there's a spectrum of actions that you can take from doing something that is with certainty going to get you arrested to doing something that is absolutely never going to get you arrested that is still going to support radical action. Yeah, it's like if you decide that there's like a snake action and you're super afraid of snakes, you don't have to do that action, you know? Let the snake lovers do the snake action and you'll do the lamb action, right? Um, like Sandy, I've also never been arrested. I've been beaten by cops, but I've never been arrested. And, um, and a lot of things that are illegal, um, you know, like occupations and stuff, you can occupy stuff in a way that you're not gonna get arrested. Like, they're not gonna waste their time because you might leave. Like, so when we closed the street and it was illegal, like, we had a fine to pay, but we also, like, did it in such a way that no one was getting arrested for illegally occupying the street. Or, we, you know, we occupied uh, the minister's office and that was super fun. And we, you know, you bring flowers to the administrative staff and you're like, go home, here are your flowers. And they're like, oh, okay. And then you just sit down. You're like, yeah, we're here for the day. So, you know. We made up songs and we posted oh them on YouTube. It was like hilarious. It was so much fun. And it was just like, you know, people in the news afterwards, the media is like, these <laughs> students, these kids are singing in, in this, you know, legislative assembly member's office. Like what? Uh, this is funny. Like, how do you arrest funny? Like, it's, yeah. it's no, like, you can't arrest funny. <laughs> That's actually a really good t tactic because you can't arrest f funny, funny stuff, right? Um, and actually, in that situation, whenever you got an occupation, like, like there is always going to be the the people who are like inside. There will always be people who are outside the occupation. And they're equally important because the outside people are doing the media relations. They are doing the, the negotiations with the people inside. They're probably doing negotiations with other people around. And then you have people who are like at the desk, not even on site, doing the social media, doing the email work, doing the calls for support, right? So you don't have to be the person that's putting your body on the line. I, you know, we should always be pushing ourselves to, to like really interrogate. Am I being afraid here or do I really have something to lose? Like, like really do that interrogating work. But also be honest, like if, if you don't have kids, like right off the bat, you know, you got a little bit more ability to like be gone for a day than someone who's got to make supper, right? 
So those are the kinds of things that you have to have discussions with internally. And, and no successful civil disobedience doesn't have like a huge level of risk difference right from the most radical to like the least visible people doing that work. And you just have to find yourself where you're comfortable. Yeah, arguably that, that two-week occupation of the police station, arguably the MVP of that action was in Calgary the whole time. Yeah, doing all of the, the writing, calling of media, getting all of the photos that we were sending to them put in place properly, like that person working just as much as we were, like working around the clock, going, going to work during the day, but was in Calgary. Uh, not really a question, but a comment. Just find another employer who will hire, hire social workers without the, um, the college recognition because a lot of places, if it's not directly related to the work that you're doing, then arguably, even if you were charged with something and it's not related to you know, the college or what you're doing as work, it can be appealed, although the college is really not the best direction to go as a worker who has workplace with lots of social workers. There's lots of work in the, in the province everywhere for social workers, so just find a better employer. <laughs> uh, hi, my name is uh, Denise, um, she, her, um, from Region 5. I work at the LCBO. <laughs> um, my thing is that I feel sometimes very demotivated. I want to keep doing all the good work. I felt really motivated in the beginning, but then so many no's, so many like, you can't do this, you can't do that, and then I do it, and then I still get the no. It's so hard to keep that motivation going after a while. Um, do you have any advice? I know, like, I understand that you did that whole thing for two weeks. It could be mentally breaking, breaking probably at one point. So how did you get through that in that aspect? Uh, we made it super fun. Like, if the thing that you're doing is not fun, then it's, like, extra work, and who needs another job? <laughs> like, you make it fun. You got to make it fun. We had um, people, like, when we got all of the support that we got, we just started being like, hey, thanks for calling us and telling us that you support us, or thanks for coming by. What do you do? Do you, like, oh, you you teach choir? Cool. Do you want to start a choir in the occupation um oh you do yoga C can you teach people how to do yoga at this time in the occupation we literally made a schedule of fun shit to do story time we had movie night we had all sorts of things and it was just we just made it fun you have to make it fun or or it sucks like the occupation or the action that we did where we stopped the pride parade in 2016 which was like this major action you know we're it's pride um and we stopped in the middle of the parade to uh to protest uh, police involvement in the parade but also all sorts of other things that were happening at pride that was anti-black and we were all very scared, nervous about that action because it was the first time that the prime minister was uh, participating in pride and so like the rooftops were lined with snipers like like in a way that had never happened before so we were like totally terrified of like what was going to happen and so instead of just doing like something like totally regular we were just like we're going to dress up and we're going to make it camp we're going to make it beautiful we're going to make it amazing we're going to make it fun we had like really fun makeup we got like our hair braided up all fun and um these uh, amazing t-shirts with like golds um, print on them, and we had uh, 
colored smoke bombs and like we were just like we're gonna make it theatrical we're gonna make it fun we're gonna make everybody who's a part of this feel like it's fun too we had drums and whatever and it's just like to take away some of that fear and to make it something that everyone was like damn I want to be a part of the next thing we're like great the next thing is gonna be maybe less fun or even more fun we're gonna figure out how to make it so that this is something that people want to keep doing that's part of it yeah and the other thing too is it's like you're gonna hear no a hundred times before you hear yes. You know, like we, we cut our teeth in the student movement where we were fighting powers that l just wanted to fuck students as much as possible, always. And you know, when we're fighting for, we were, you know, first we were fighting for a freeze in tuition fees, then we're fighting for lower tuition fees, then we were fighting for free tuition fees. And it wasn't about winning that. It was about creating a culture where we could talk about alternatives because that's the other kind of trick that's happened with, within society is like we're not allowed to be creative or imaginative or imagine a different world, right? And so if we're always butting up against someone saying no and we're hoping that they'll say yes, that's, that's a recipe for burnout for sure. So, you know, this is also where creativity is very important. It's like, well, when we're talking about tuition fees and we know that they're not necessarily going to go down, they're not going to be eliminated through the activism we're doing because we have to have activism that touches more people that are than just students because it's a big political issue and no one's going to agree to it unless it's like got political implications. We're just going to push for it anyway. And we're going to push for it in a way that is on our terms, that is fun, that engages young people because that's, that's our priority at the time. And we're gonna try and change the converse conversation in society. The premiers always still said no until all of a sudden it became a crisis and we had created the conditions for people to understand what was driving the crisis. So the fight became a rhetorical fight. And um, when student debt becomes a crisis level, all of a sudden the arguments that we had been making for years through, through lobbying, through public re relations, through our campaigns on the ground, through talking to students, became something that journalists were able to pick up on really easily. And then you had governments actually reducing tuition fees in very bizarre and not good ways. But then the no turned into a, like a weird maybe and then all of a sudden we're like, okay, we can work with maybe. Like we're gonna fight through the maybe and we're gonna try and fight against that, right? So it really, I mean, it depends on what you're talking about, of course. Um, but you know, for me, like there are the biggest issues in like I'm a socialist who like genuinely believes in socialist revolution. Like how fucking stupid can I be to actually believe that, right? That's never gonna happen, Nora, you fucking socialist, right? I, I was covering the conservative convention and every time I was talking to people about their politics, they'd always ask me, I'm like, I, I'm also a journalist, right? So I'm like, oh yeah, so you know, what are your politics? Blah, blah. And then he's like, what are your politics? I'm like, well, I'm a socialist. And they're like, the fuck? Really, right? But it's because I don't think that the revolution is something that we ask for. Like the answer is obviously no, but it's something that we build, for me, it's something that I build towards and I, and I find ways to try and, and influence the, the structures that we have to, to make this, these things possible, to render them visible. Um, and in rendering them visible, we can imagine things that actually operate completely differently, right? Like, look at the healthcare crisis. Like, like all the only thing we're calling for in the healthcare crisis, the only thing that that a lot of folks on the left are calling for is public healthcare, right? Which is like, yes, it's good, it's very good. We need public healthcare, but public healthcare kind of sucks right now. Not sure if folks have noticed, right? 
And so how do we call for public health care knowing that public health care kind of sucks? It was the same with the child care. Child care folks are like, well, we want universal, publicly accessible child care. Yes. But what sucks right now? Grade one kind of sucks right now. The entire school system sucks right now. So knowing that we've got such a huge set of problems, well, can we come up with solutions that are a bit different? You know, in Quebec City, there is um, a huge lack of, of frontline, of uh, street-level services for sex workers and street-involved folks. And the, you know, the public health care system wasn't helping them. And so folks came together and they created a private clinic. And that was the only way to reach people. Now it's a private clinic. We can say, oh, that's not good. Well, what's wrong with a private clinic? Well, first of all, the funding. But they couldn't keep funding. But it was such a successful thing. They managed to get funding. They managed to find pockets of money. And then within five years or so, as their funding was threatened again, the, the provincial government was like, this is a good model. We're funding it. And so now it's a public clinic. All right? So you find ways to fight against these structures and the labor movement, the unions. I mean, I say this all the time. I don't understand why, why union locals with money that they have just hire a psych psychiatrist for your, for your members or hire a doctor for your members. Companies do this all the time. Hire a nurse who your members can, can call when they're freaking out about like a rash or something, right? Um, th these kinds of solutions are really important and, and we render them possible not by getting too down from the no's that we're going to inevitably get, but by being like, okay, I know you're going to say no. So like, I'm going to do something totally lateral to that. I'm going to do something very different to that. And maybe through doing something laterally, we actually can get back at that. And then the answer is yes, because I mean, in the case of the street closure, all of the politicians, all of the university administrators were like, absolutely not. We're not closing the street. They now use that to advertise to people to go to Toronto Metropolitan University. So it's like, okay, you know, th you can thank us. Like, where's my check, right? Uh, which they never, of course, g gave, a, uh, gave to us. But th th these are the, like, we build things rather than trying to get the yes or the no from the politician. And then the thing is, if the no that you're hearing is from, like, your colleagues and you're like, hey, Nora, I would like to run a campaign to defund the police. And Nora's like, Absolutely not. no, Love that the sucks. Police. The police are so necessary. That is, that's the place to have the discussion. That's like, okay, well, you tell me why you're at no, and I'll tell you why I'm at yes, and we will struggle until we come to either some sort of agreement or I understand the no's better and I'm going to use that for my campaign. <laughs> you know? Like, that, you know, that conversation is really, really important. And if the no's that you're hearing are from like the campaign that you're doing where you're like you're trying to change something and you're hearing no the other thing to think about with that is to change what your idea of victory is because some of these things are very long campaigns some of them are short some of them are very long and for me like the defund the ca police campaign was monumentally effective i thought it was one of the most successful campaigns Ever. Now, there was only a few police uh, departments uh, in Canada that actually, you know, reduced their funding, and some got way more funding, actually, um, after 2020, uh, in the, like, sort of backlash period. But what was so, like, in my mind, I'm like, victory, <laughs> like, about it, is that for the first time in, like, ever, we were able to break through the sort of like media stranglehold that the police have across the world. People were all of a sudden who had never been confronted with these issues before for whom policing is just a, like a myth that comes from like television, that comes from watching you know, uh, police procedurals on television. We're finally able to hear 
narratives from people who interact with the police every day. We're finally able to hear the statistics, the ridiculous statistics at how ineffective the police are at creating safety. We're finally able to kind of consider, wait a minute, why are the safest communities the ones that have no police anywhere near them and the most dangerous the ones with all the police, and like really consider these issues. Wait a minute, do the police prevent anything or do they just respond to things and why don't we try to prevent things? Like these questions, you can't unknow that. You can't not have heard that. Those people are forever changed and it will make the next time there's a groundswell a lot easier way easier, and that is a massive victory. So you could tell me, no, we're not gonna defund the police all day, I already won. My, my level of victory is different. I'm trying to change people, because it's people who make the world. We make the world. And you, like your stranglehold on power is only gonna last as long as people allow it to last. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Melissa and I'm from Ottawa from Region 4 and I'm an executive board member there and I'm a healthcare worker. So I really appreciate hearing you say celebrate those small wins because we can't strike mm -hmm. and healthcare is shit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people are feeling like we do demonstrations, we do info pickets, we do these lunchtime rallies, we do some work to rule, we wear t-shirts, we get stickers. It's not doing anything, mm. right? So how do you keep people motivated when they're worried about exactly what you were saying, losing their license to practice. They're worried if I do this illegal strike, which has been talked about, and eight of my colleagues don't go out, I'm gonna be fired. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you make people feel confident enough in the group doing something as a whole that they're not gonna be fired or disciplined? And we can't guarantee that, yep. right? And I'm very honest about that when I talk to people, I can't guarantee that for you. Um, I know that I'm all for this um, and I'm a single mom and I'm going to take that risk and I'm 20 years into my career and it's gone to shit in 20 years. So, you know, I'm very motivated in that regard, but a, young workers aren't. They're yeah. like, fuck it, I got school, I got, I got, I'm, you know, I $2,000 rent, I got this, I got that, or I'm five years from retirement. You know, this doesn't impact me in five years. So how do you, how do you wrap your head around all that? And I know it's a big question, and, but I just, you know, what ideas do you have in getting people to that place in a year from now? You know, yep. look what, you know, Amazon workers did. It took time, it took effort, it took lunches, it took coffee breaks, it took all of that. So how do you organize a province of healthcare workers that are exhausted, mm -hmm. but pissed off, but frustrated that what they're doing isn't really accomplishing their goal? you know, to take on this government. So I'm curious to know what you have to say about that. Yeah, okay, so there's a whole bunch of things that in the workplace you can do, and then I think we also have to talk about outside the workplace, right? So um, there was a very quiet movement in Hamilton among nurses to do co coordinated calling in sick. And that was very effective in scaring management because they all of a sudden realized like, oh my God, like this is coordinated, that people are calling in sick. So there are like tactics like that that you can take. Um, and the key organizer there, I mean, he was uh, working, and I, it, we should talk about this because you know him. Um, we, uh, he was working very quietly around the union because the union not only was not super radical, and it's not an obsolete local, um, but they also uh, couldn't be seen as supporting it. 
right? So like it was kind of a double reason to not in involve the union. But then once it started to happen, the union realized that it was an effective strategy to get management to be forced to respond to the demands because people were not coming into work. Um, and they were finding ways to do it that um, wasn't going to get them disciplined because they were, they were calling in sick. Um, and so that, that was useful because it showed the workers that they can do things safely um, and the union was forced to respond to it, recognizing that they didn't have anything to do with it, so there was going to be no discipline with the union. It was not an illegal action. It wasn't an illegal strike. Um, and because they actually had, they actually didn't have anything to do with it, they had total plausible deniability. And I should follow up with him to see how that went, because it sounded like they were really, like just the power to be able to say, you know what, like the conditions in this hospital are such a disaster, we're not coming in. Was, was enough to make them realize that collective action is possible, right? Whether or not they want anything is maybe a different, a different issue, but to just take that collective action, to, take that, to get over that hump that you're not gonna get fired for this uh, is really important. So that's really, that's necessary. But, you know, I think that we rely too much on the frontline workers to be the ones to change their work conditions. You know, it's, it, it is too much to ask a nurse to then also lead the revolution, right? The nurses should be the ones, like, wearing the medical armbands, being like, I'll, I'll help you from getting hit by a rubber bullet from the cops, right? Like, that, like, there's roles that we can all play. I mean, it would be great. Nurses can, of course, lead the revolution. Like, but you're busy, and as you say, like, busy and, and burnt out and, and freaked out and all this stuff. So it's like... You know, you've got the, the limits of what you can do on the, on the job. You should always be pushing those limits to test to see how far you can push. Um, but we have to build outside of just the staff, right? There has to be, like, the, the patient activism in this province has been abysmal. There's no patient activism. And I don't, I mean, I've got criticisms of the Ontario Health Coalition. I think that they actually play a bit of a negative role in this because they take up so much space. Um, but we need patients or potential patients, or, or loved ones of patients, if patients are un unable to do that themselves, to be doing the activism, to give the cover for the workers to do more activism. Because you know, like, aside from your collective agreement, you're not saving the system on your own. You can't, you legally cannot save the system on your own. So that's really, really important. And there are, there are pockets of it. I know in Ottawa especially, there is a lot of like folks trying, like Joel Harden has organized a, a couple of things, right? Um, that's really, really necessary. But if we can look at our communities and be like, look, do you want to die in an emergency room? Do you want to die in an emergency room? Do you want to die waiting for a paramedic to show up? That's going to have to be the message that we get to start organizing everyone outside of the, of the, of the healthcare system to get them into, into, into action. And then we can also talk about tactics like, um, you know, in Quebec, we have this wonderful former paramedic, former and current journalist, Hal Newman, who's been tracking every location in, on, in Quebec that has no ambulances. And he has a, a direct line in with the ambulance unions and, um, and, and is like publicly, public, publishing like, no ambulances here, no ambulances here, no ambulances here. And it's gotten a lot of coverage in the media and it's gotten a lot of people like wanting to take action because it's, it's like very scary, right? So it's like bringing it outside of the workplace is actually I think what we have to do right now because the focus has been so much on, well, why can't nurses save themselves? And it's like under these conditions, like, are you kidding me? You know, it's impossible. And it's not just nurses, of course.
Sure, so that was gonna be one of my questions. I'm not a nurse, I don't represent nurses, so we are behind the scenes. Yeah. The government doesn't give a shit about us, even though we're very necessary. There's 250 allied health professions that make a hospital run besides nurses. So it's that buy-in that isn't there with the public, so they don't know what the hell we do. Yep. Right? That's right. Yeah, you're to I mean, my parents are healthcare workers who work in the in the background uh, and are members of SEIU, and so I hear you, sister, 100%. Um, the, I think that was a great answer. The only thing that I have to add is you mentioned the um, the struggle of, of trying to get people who are already feeling kind of demotivated and feeling like this isn't working, and then like trying to do that on a provincial level. My advice to you there would be to figure out the place, the, the, the first place you want to have like a really big impact at. Um, maybe it's a smaller place. Maybe it's a smaller workplace where uh, people are more integrated into their community and so it makes a bigger impact than a place like Ottawa. I guarantee you if you're able to do that, I mean, when we were doing student organizing, that I, we would do that. Like we would go to you know, uh, to, to Trent or to, um, uh, to, uh, Nipissing, Nipissing, like a smaller campus to inspire the students at York and, and University of Toronto to like believe that in Lakehead to believe that something was possible. Uh, because if you could get it off the ground in a smaller place, like these, the the other workers will hear about it because that news will travel through the workers and students. If you're, you know, like if you are still a student or if that's something like it travels in those communities, and then people will be like, "What well, can I? What can we do here? Like if people are doing that elsewhere, how can I make that happen here?" And that's how you build a really effective uh, provincial response. You start somewhere small and make it make it grow. <laughs> My name is Liam, pronouns are he and him, uh, and as a young worker who has a 45-minute commute one way to my job, uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts. So um, when it comes to people listening to podcasts or starting on podcasts, uh, for example, um, we have our own podcast, The S Word, right, hosted by our own PYC. Amazing. So many things I listen to on my commute to work. What advice would you give to people who use podcasts as a mean of connecting with audiences, especially in the young worker demographic who use this alternative form of media? Yeah, okay, so um, it is really interesting to see in the labor movement where podcasts have been. So, we, like, we, we, we kind of hit... I hope it's not true, but I feel like we've hit peak podcast during the pandemic when people were very isolated and were only listening to podcasts. And um, and now I feel like I'm only hearing people listening to podcasts if they're commuting or if they're trying to fall asleep, which is like not good. The second's not good for like our podcast. Like I don't want you listening to us as you're drifting off into dreamland because I need you to think about what we're talking about, right? Um, and I'm sure that's the same thing for union podcasts. Um, we, so at the Canadian Association of Labor Media, we run uh, annual awards. And thanks to those awards, I get to see what podcasts are being produced in the labor movement. And it's not many, which is kind of too bad. And I'm always surprised by that. You know, there's like a, a great IATSE podcast. IATSE are the film uh, technical workers uh, based out in Vancouver. There's CupyCast, who I don't know if you folks have listened to CupyCast, but that's a, a kind uh, of... Uh, we interviewed CupyCast And you interviewed... We had a podcast about podcasts talking about podcasts. Ah. Meta. Um, but so I think here's the thing. Like, radio and, and, and auditory arts are powerful because the, the sound of someone's voice is fundamental. It's so fundamental to our core. 
And it's one of the reasons why CBC is such a vital service. I mean, if only they treated it like it's a vital service because the content on CBC makes me wanna like jump out of a window. But that's why we have a podcast. But um, the, 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 the connection between a voice and when what you're hearing and what you're feeling is very, very powerful. And you know, as I live in Quebec, I'm not in Ontario all that much, though I was in traffic for three hours on the 401 last week. And I was listening to the radio and it was just like, wow, commercial radio has gotten like way shittier than when I was a kid. Like it's really bad. There's nothing good on commercial radio, which means people are still looking for places to find something to listen to. And this is where the podcast world comes in. Now, I can't say whether or not a union podcast is a great way to mobilize union members because I don't know the stats for QPcast, for example. I don't know how many people are listening to it. I can say with our podcast, um, and I mean, and, and we've been at it for a long time. I mean, we're seven years into this world. Uh, we were kind of early on in the podcasting industry. Um, we're like one of the regular top 20 political podcasts in Canada. And I see the numbers and, you know, the numbers fluctuate. It's, they're not huge. I mean, they are big if compared to any, like most podcasts, but they're not huge numbers. But the connection that we've made on our podcast with people is like actually still shocking to me. Um, you know, people will recognize us when we're at stuff, not together. And it's like, oh my God, like you guys saved my life during the pandemic. I, you're like, I feel like you're my best friend. I know, oh yeah, Nora, I know exactly what's going on in your life. And I'm like, oh fuck, yeah, I mentioned that on the podcast. Um, and so, I mean, it's weird for us, but it's very clear to me that it, it connects with people. And I mean, some of it's the content, of course. Um, but we and our voices connect with people in a way that like, I don't think any other medium would allow for. And at 45 minutes, 50 minutes for our podcast, there's like, you know, quite a, quite a commitment that we require people to listen to us. And it's very clear that we touch them. And I think that that is the power of it. And so like, if you can, if you can produce something that sounds good, and I know I've worked and talked to your production group, so I'm super excited for the first episode. Um, if you can be relevant, if you can push it into people's ears, uh, I think that, that it is, it is definitely worth it. Cause it's also not a ton of work. Like they're also, it's like a lo-fi kind of medium. Um, but, but it's the attention economy. Like we are also competing for a million different with a million different things to get people's attention. And that can be really difficult as well. So, I mean, it's more a question for you. Let's talk in a year and see how the, how the young workers podcast does. Amelia, how many episodes are out now? Hi, four. Yeah, oh my so god, you're already at four. four. Okay, fuck, what the fuck? The easiest way to find it is uh, just like, I was like looking up the S word, nothing. Just put in off suit, yeah. comes up. And <laughs> you know what? Have fun with it too. I think that that's also one of the, the crucial things is it, it's fun to listen to people having fun, you know? So have fun with your podcast. But also the other thing that I would say is just consistency. If there's a way that people can can expect like when the episode is coming out and that sort of thing, make sure, try to be consistent about it. Uh, not just in the way that you put it out, but also in doing it. Because in your first year, it's going to be like, no one's listening to us, but oh, well, at least it's fun to talk to Nora weekly, you know? And then something happened, like it shifted, like people started listening to us, but we never would have gotten to that point if we weren't consistent about it for literally over a year of just like, we're having fun chatting with each other, so.
Hi, I'm Sarah, also an executive board member and chair of the hospital professionals division. And I just wanted to touch on one of the things that Melissa spoke about, about healthcare workers being pissed off. And also that, you know, healthcare workers can't do things that, you know, other people would normally do and that's not true. Uh, 20 years ago, the hospital professionals division walked off the job in what was called an emergency day of action and it was declared an illegal strike by the labor board but it's because the workers decided that they were going to trust that they were all going together and that they were not going to leave one person hanging out and so that they could get fired and if there's ever been a time when workers in healthcare could stand up for themselves it is now with the market the way it is we have all of the power in the world that if healthcare workers decided today that they wanted to take a, the action and not strike because yeah we can't strike but do illegal action in a big way that draws attention to the issues and that's exactly what they did 20 years ago and and the message about you know that maybe things don't always work or maybe you don't get results I would say for the hospital professionals division, we received the largest arbitration increase in an arbitrated award recently, which included pandemic premium, which was not even in the term of this collective agreement. Mm -hmm. Why did we get it? Because in July 2020, hospitals across this province took strike votes. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know that. Our members took strike votes and the lowest percentage was 89% to do illegal action on July 17th in 2020. We got dragged to the labor board. It was declared an illegal strike before we did it. That was used as evidence in arbitration. Our members have taken strike votes again this year. Some of our locals have said, we have had enough. We can't continue to do the work that we're doing. We need to draw attention to our issues. So I, I think when people are ready, when they want to do something, they need to know that they will be supported by their union. And sometimes you have to fight your own union. Yep. That is the reality. We've all been in those moments where we've had to fight against the status quo and the people that tell us, no, you can't. Yep. And, you know, the hospital professionals did it in, in 20 years ago when the president of the union said, no, you're not going to do it because it's illegal. And our members said, the hell we are. And, and they did it. And the president said, I got my snowsuit in the trunk and I'm gonna be on the picket lines with my members. So when you push back, mm -hmm. sometimes against your own leadership, and sometimes you have to do that because people are, you know, they're trying to give you advice to, you know, help you do the things that you wanna do, but sometimes it's not the best advice. And we all have to realize that if, you know, even leaders sometimes don't give the best advice because mm -hmm. they are, want the best for you, but, they don't know how far you're willing to take things until you say, I'm going to take it this far. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people, and I think that this is what the question was struggling with, was like, how do you make sure that there's enough solidarity that everyone walks off the job, right? Because that's the, that's the nightmare. Eight people go, and then you're like, oh, shit, right? That was a trap. Um, I don't, how many of you are watching what's going on in Quebec right now? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Folks, 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 folks. So Quebec is in public sector bargaining right now, and to do public sector bargaining in that province since 1972, 70, um, they bargain in something called the Common Front, and the Common Front bargains all of the public sector together. And so it means that all of, almost all of the public sector unions are either in the Common Front or outside of the Common Front, but they're all operating together. And the Common Front deals with like the big issues like wage grids and stuff. And they are gearing up for what will probably be a province-wide general strike. And the fact that you don't know this is like a little bit worrying to me because <laughs> it's like the biggest news going on in Quebec right now. 
Um, the last time there was a Common Front showdown was in 2000 and, um, I don't know, uh, 17 or so. It was against the Liberal government. And healthcare workers had to, had to deal with this question. How do we take strike action when we are essential services? And the, they all found the way to do it. I mean, you know, it helps to have the solidarity of other public sector workers also walking off the job. But they built that solidarity into the model of the common front. And there's no question that when you go out, everyone's going out. But I think in Ontario, uh, like even the knowledge of 20 years ago is, is nowhere. And so there is, there is a lot of painstaking education work that needs to go on to just give people the confidence to be like, they're not firing us if we all leave. They're not. And we can do it in a way that's safe and that protects our patients or protects our clients or whatever, but they will not fire all of us. They might fire the leader, but the leader is gonna be the one who's aware of that and is ready for that risk, right? So I, yeah, I think that we, like looking at what's going on in Quebec is really important. Looking at what's gone on in our past is really important and make sure that people know that so it isn't theoretical for them. 